Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is James Cuss. He's the co-founder and CEO of Rocket Industries. He's a serial entrepreneur. And in 2012, he sold everything and took his family on a world tour. So we're going to explore his journey as an entrepreneur, his journey as a salesperson, the mistakes that he's made along the way. We're going to explore some frequently unasked questions and some regrets. We won't call them regrets, hard-earned lessons, and how it's affected his habits, his thinking. We're going to look at the difference between risking and sacrificing. And we're also going to explore some really daft decisions that we tend to make and how we come unstuck as a result. So without any further ado, James, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. It's a pleasure to be on Inquisitor Podcast. It's not often the camera gets turned on me, so um, I'm a bit of a newbie to this, but um, no, I'm, I'm excited right. to get stuck in and have a, I'm sure, oh, I know we're going to have a great conversation because, uh, you know, when we've met in the past, it's always been, you know, great fun. Excellent. So relax. It's really easy being um, the patient. All you've got to do is just answer the questions. <laughs> so um, give us a couple of minutes on your history, because it is very interesting. So uh, talk to us about that. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, if I go right back, so I grew up in Sussex. My parents both worked for the airlines. So from a very young age, I was actually, I spent a lot of time in Kenya growing up. And I first got into sales, actually. I know that it's kind of a, a topic of interest on your podcast, um, actually bartering for shells and fish you know as a child just I, I just you know that I'd be my father would be trying to buy an octopus and the guy would be eating it while, while dad negotiated and you know the, the longer the negotiation took the less octopus <laughs> um, so I think I just and I, I hung out with the locals and I just um, I fell in love with this trading and bartering and everything else so I think that was my first introduction to sales I ended up um, especially spending about seven years at art college I had my work in the National Portrait Gallery. I did a degree in fine art photography. So I've always been quite creative. And actually, one of the most interesting or helpful things that I did at college was an art foundation where I looked at different subjects and lots of different angles. And actually, sales is quite like, like that as well. Um, and it's it's adding value. It's um, I always liked um, you know creating beautiful art and, and actually watching people's reactions. I think I'm naturally a good, reasonably good emotional intelligence. So I think being able to read people was always... I was always interested in people. And, you know, when I did my photography, it was um, just studying people. So I think I've kind of taken that into my professional career. And then obviously in, in more recent years, in the last decade or so, I've, um, you know, I've started a number of companies and that entrepreneurial creativity, but also adding value to the end customer is, is something I'm really passionate about. I have uh, Rocket Industries, which is uh, my main business. We work in finance. We provide learner finance for commercial training providers and help them grow. But I also run a, a podcast about visionaries, Rocket Pod, deconstructing how visionaries can take that idea and put it into reality. So it's been an interesting one. And I married a flight attendant and I got three beautiful teenage daughters. That's me. Excellent. So tell me about uh, 2012. The What was the journey leading up to it, first of all? Okay, so that was kind of my first kind of plunge into, so if I back, backtrack a bit, so pre-2012, I had a, a, a you know high-paid high sales job and I, I kind of took the plunge and started one group, which um, was a professional consulting firm. My business partner was, you know, Ivy League out of Dartmouth and on paper it was brilliant, but we couldn't really make a decision together. And I was working around the clock trying to provide outsourced sales 
in this context and we wrote grants and bits and pieces but anyway my wife was raising two young children uh, three young children at the time and the impetus was the effort i was putting in was not translating into capital and it was putting a lot of financial strain on our family and i woke up one sunday morning and my wife was uh, very blue and very depressed actually and um i looked at her and i had this idea i said why don't we just sell everything and travel around the world it wasn't working and um this light came on in her eyes <laughs> that's the girl i married so literally i started unwinding everything split the bank account in in two and then started liquidating everything we owned so we sold 95 percent of everything we owned and then we hit the road our kids were five seven nine at the time we homeschooled them for you know a year we're off the grid for 18 months it was really wonderful i mean it was it was challenging traveling as a family but uh but it was one of those things where my uh, wife's parents had just been through a divorce and it was just it was just really you know we just had had to get out of a rut basically and that's what we did so it was quite radical we had to go and do something for ourselves and you know we took you know that was, it's a pretty big risk but in doing so you know we met some great people i sold my house without a real estate agent and the uh, the appraisal came back 50,000 under what the mortgage had been approved for you know i said to the guy well i'll write your mortgage for the difference and he coughed and came up with the money so anyway it was a really interesting experience uh, <laughs> and then we ended up in England you know <laughs> so I brought my family back here so. I'm really curious about this question if all you could do is to improve is subtract what would you stop doing outsource or delegate and I'm really curious what you let go of in that 12-18 month away and who you were underneath what was left when you let go of all the baggage? I think for me, it was just, it was just giving time. Well, I was kind of absent emotionally for my family. So I think in that time on a personal level, I was up and close with my kids and I didn't really realize how different their brains worked. And, you know, even doing the homeschooling thing is pretty challenging. I reconnected with my wife and I think just be, just putting myself in a, in a completely different environment and just being alone and actually just having time to breathe, I think, because I think we can all be on this rat race, you know, work, 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 work. I mean, in the US, you know, they take work to the next level. And I mean, I worked in the US for five years before I even had any vacation. You know, that was, uh, you know, you got 10 days after five years. That's normal. So I think for me, it was um, it was just um, having time to think um, and to read and to write and to kind of have a it's almost start again. So that was, it was almost like a rebirth. (laughs) Okay. So what was the clutter that you noticed that other people had when you came back that you had let go of? Okay. I think I'm getting to kind of figure out where I want to go with this. So I think one thing that was really clear is that, and and everyone does it and I do it a little bit to a certain extent now, but a lot of folks will, will put a lot of their security in the things that they have in, in possessions in bricks and mortar house or whatever, even though most people have mortgages and actually the bank owns their house. So it's a bit of an illusion. But I think cutting away the things that don't matter, and then you you kind of come to the realization that the only thing that matters is your friends and your family. I mean, that's one big step, but that takes, that's, that's a process. I mean, another thing, when I was away, I thought, holy shit, you know, I've taken massive financial risk and, you know, I, I stopped drinking around the world. I, you know, I, I wrote myself some goals and uh, said, right, I'm going to get my shit together and, uh, and, and not drink until I achieve these goals. So I think 
again, it was just that self-awareness that it was actually the beginning of becoming more self-aware. So, so I think that was, if that helps answer your question. It's getting closer. So tell me this, how did your, what you valued shift? Because from what I'm hearing, it sounded like prior to this epiphany on that Sunday morning, your focus and your value, what you considered to be success was extrinsic. And there was a shift and your focus and locus of control became intrinsic. I'm really curious about what power that gave you and what agency that gave you. And I touched on it with, um, again, putting security into things and, and objects and possessions. I think that's a very external, it's almost like external validation. So I had the beautiful house. I had the three-car garage. You know, I had the full basement with the lathe. You know, I had a beautiful wife and three children. But but a lot of my, you know, what it was external. You know, I did reasonably well, you know, up to that point. But it wasn't enough. And, and there's always this... Um, I guess mindset of having not having enough that lack, and I think capitalism is kind of built on that is that lack, and you're always trying to fill the void. You always, you know, need that bigger house or that car. So I think I came out of that world. Obviously, I took the entrepreneurial plunge, and it was it was financially challenging to get actually realize that it's really hard to start a business, really fucking hard. But I think yeah, when we cashed out and hit the road, I think you're right. I think it was more about getting strength from within which is the intrinsic piece you touched on. So I think um, that's ultimately where we all, you know, I mean, I think to live a, a happy and fulfilling life, you know, if you can be confident in your in yourself and the power that you have, and you touched on agency again, it's, um, it makes you more interesting too, to be honest. I mean, like life can be a bit of like fucking boring, you know, a bit of groundhog day. And sometimes we need to change our environments. And I'm not suggesting that anyone does something as radical as I did, but I needed to do that to get out of Dodge, right? So we, we got out of Dodge <laughs> and completely turned off, you know, and it was a, a completely different focus. Well, again, I think one of the, you, you've taken it to an extreme, but one of the things that I teach my clients is that we need to reflect deeply. And if, if we don't spend time in deep reflection, then chances are we will tend to fall into patterns and traps that certainly don't serve us in the long run. Uh, and then when we find ourselves caught in that rat race and we're burning out, we numb and you numb through, in my case, often it was food, uh, it could be drugs, alcohol, it could be sex, thrill seeking, getting into fights, whatever it is that you do to try and alter your state so that you can feel something. But typically what you're doing is you're numbing that feeling. And when you numb that feeling in one part of your life, you numb it in others then there's that ripple effect. And you start to see this burnout going through a person's life where they assign so much worth and value to the extrinsic, to being recognized, to their how other people see them as being significant, getting likes on Facebook or whatever, getting their content seen, being noticed, the material trappings. And then in that pursuit, they then start to underemphasize and pay less attention and be less present in the relationships that matter the most. And then they become more and more isolated, they become defensive, and I'm speaking from bitter personal experience here. And then you blame everyone and everything else instead of taking a fucking good look in the mirror 
and saying, well, what am I missing? What have I got wrong? Who is paying the negative price so I can get my ego rubbed, so I can pursue my obsession? Is that a price worth paying? And it's only when you start asking those type of questions that you start to develop real self-awareness. Because self-awareness is understanding not only how you respond to circumstance and other people, but the effect you have on them. And you can't sell, you can't lead or manage without that level of empathy. And I think part of the problem that we see in sales is that there's an overemphasis on technique, on data, on revenue. There are four underpinning pillars or points of the pyramid. There's listening, but it needs to be deep listening, not this sham active listening. There needs to be real quality questioning, questioning that provokes insight, that causes people to think differently, opens their mind to new possibilities. Mm -hmm. Then emotional intelligence, so being able to read the room, and business acumen. And the problem is, if you don't have all four, then odds are you're going to overemphasize the thing that you're most comfortable with. And most people, it's technique, it's the playbook, it's the data, it's the automation. And that's not not why people buy. So I'm curious how different you are, having had that deep reflective experience to today compared with uh, the, the man you were before. I've had a complete paradigm shift in the sense that I am much more self-aware. If I'm triggered in a negative way by somebody else, I realize that I've actually got the problem. Whereas in the past, I might point fingers at them. I was only following orders is still a choice. You still pulled the trigger. Yes. So I think, um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a you know, again, I, I, I know I touched on the fact that I, I wrote myself a contract and and stopped drinking. I think that's helped accelerate my self-awareness. Since 2010, I mean, that's probably a question. I was <laughs> just being open to new information, I think, um, having an open mind, developing a growth mindset. I think we're all on a journey. You can't expect to have everything immediately. I think we live in that you know instant gratification world. I think anything worth having takes grit and determination and creativity and agency uh, but you know we can we obviously get you know hopefully get better at what we do i think it's realizing how much i didn't know before so that ignorance piece i mean i always used to say ignorance is bliss and i was you know to be honest it's i mean yes it is but it's it's a bit crass you know i think well, um, i think ignorance is forgivable willful ignorance is not right? once you know then you have no excuse then it's a decision and it's a matter of priorities and values. And I think far too often we allow expediency or short-term pressure to be the whipping boy um, for our bad decisions. And so often, and I mean, this is my fifth recession, so I'm pretty confident that the way to differentiate is just turn up and be a decent human being. Turn up with the intent to serve and don't lie to people. If you do those three things consistently and mean it, you will stand apart from the majority of your competition because most of them will, under pressure, behave abysmally. They will either run their mouths and give stuff away. They'll give 
unilateral discounts prematurely that are unnecessary, and they'll spook the buyer into not buying, despite the fact the deal is brilliant, because they haven't understood the other human being. And then they will lie, they will omit, they will coerce, they will manipulate, and they will try and put people into a box and squeeze them into this quarter because they need to make a quota. Don't do any of that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's so funny. I think um, back in my old self, it, so I think you can you can try too hard, right? You can be, I mean, tenacity is a really, it's a great quality, but you can over-egg it. You can squeeze that bar of soap too hard and then lose it. <laughs> you know, again, this is what happens with self-awareness. And what I've learned now is that actually you can build time into every every day. Not you don't have to do something radical. You know, I don't, I didn't really go on holiday for you know fifteen years or thirteen years while I was in the US. Not not really. So I didn't give myself any time. So I was like a wound up rubber band. I think if you can give yourself permission to give you yourself time to to reflect, and you can do that on a daily basis. You can meditate. You can spend time with yourself. That then filters down into your your work and if you're in sales you can be you know if you if you're if you're more self-aware yourself then you could be more aware of some of the, the subtle signals i think it's getting a bit harder in the digital digital age because we don't always we're not always in front of people you know it's harder to kind of you know look at body language and stuff we don't see it but i think just being yeah being more self-aware can can only help your performance and it's um you're then in a much stronger position to show up with real value if you're going to follow up with someone, make sure that you've got something really good for them, not just following up because you need to get their feedback or something. Because that's you, you can obviously you can take, but as long as you've got a, a I don't know an abundance. What do you call it? A, there's a word for it. Mentality. No, you've got um, a surplus of trust. You know, of you know, it's almost yeah, like your, a, your emotional bank account is in credit. Yeah, but even what what you're giving the customer, you know, you're you're basically in credit. So you can take you can take stuff for you, but as long as you're, you know, you're not in deficit, basically. Well, I, I, the, a really elegant way of describing it is Charlie Green's trust equation. So trust equals credibility plus reliability plus intimacy like over self orientation. Credibility and reliability are table stakes. Anyone showing up who can't do what they say they can and doesn't do it is going to be out off the table pretty damn quick. Intimacy is the most important operator in that equation because what it means is someone has been vulnerable. They've lowered their defenses and they've let you in. They've shared confidences and you have with them. It's reciprocal. Yeah. Now, for that to be possible, you have to have low self-orientation. It doesn't mean you have none. It mm. doesn't mean you go totally native. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. What it does mean is you understand that your reward is a symptom of helping enough other people get their needs met first. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I wrote down on my notepad, yeah, help your customers get what they want. And actually, that's kind of how I, I like to roll. And I, it keeps me up at night when I don't have something for someone. Because it's almost like, it, okay, but it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you don't have anything, so you just can't. Then you have no reason to contact them. But... What if you have an ecosystem which is made up of other people who could bring value to them? So when you do speak to them, you always have something useful mm. and timely and relevant to offer them. Yeah. Because in my mind, my job, as far as I'm concerned as a seller and as a manager or a leader, is to consistently show up 
and demonstrates that I'm living the values that I want my people to live and espouse. Because leaders aren't about leading, they're about creating more people who share their values and go out and do the right thing. And we're all in service of the job to be done. And if we don't understand what the job to be done is, that's on the leader because they haven't been clear. So as a founder, what lessons have you learned the hard way Mm-hmm. about the quality and clarity of your communication the hard way i think for me i think it's just been taking on too much i'm very meticulous well you know when i do something i like to give 110 percent of my energy into communicating something whether it's an email or or you know even a voicemail i'll delete four voicemails before actually leaving one that actually is is good and maybe that's a weakness but anyway I, I i'm i'm very meticulous so and i think it's probably on the perfectionism thing which is a which is probably more of a negative of how i was raised and it's just some of my own internal demons maybe of, of having everything have to be having to be perfect so i think for me if i'm not able to deliver that just succinct communication if i spread myself too thin then i've i've got less so i think when i've run teams i've taken on too much and I'll give an example. In 2021, I started a business called Som Group with a Somalian who actually grew up in the UK. But we stopped, we were starting an electri- electrical training college in Somalia while I was doing my startup. You know, <laughs> it's like the worst. And I did fly to Somalia and I went and did lots of stuff. I know it's not related, but it, again, it's just for me, it's it's keeping things simple. Obviously, um, I'm on all the platforms. You know, I, I, you know, Slack is a great tool. WhatsApp, but I just think for me, it's um, it's just making sure that in the last few years, and it, again, it's a lesson learned, and it is related to communication. It's almost like knowing that 20% of your input is going to be 80% of the value, and just prioritizing. If there's gold, then don't dig over. So, you know, my business partner's always saying to me, James, what the fuck are you doing? There's gold. We've got gold here. What are you digging over there for? You know, we've got, a, we found a gold seam. <laughs> so I think it's just prioritization. So that's my new thing. If you're really focused on what really moves the needle, then your communication is going to be sharp. You're going to show up with the right thing for your customers and everything kind of goes from there. So I think. Yeah, and again, apologies, team, if you're listening to this in the past. You know, James is MIA. He's absent. He's in. He's in Africa. Yeah, so I don't know whether that helps to answer the question, but I think, um, yeah, just know what the, just focus on focus. I think I've just heard you say, focus on what matters most. Say no to everything else. You said that, yeah, a lot more succinctly than I did. <laughs> okay, uh, prioritize. Prioritize. Um, Find the things that give you energy and delegate, outsource, or stop doing the things that don't, the things that drain you. Yes. Focus on your strengths because those are your development areas and surround yourself with people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. Have clarity in terms of what is to be achieved and trust your people to be able to achieve them, uh, achieve those outcomes, but make sure you don't abdicate responsibility and so this requires clear communication clear permission in terms of what the rules are for them to be able to make the decision so you can delegate with trust and then concentrate on high value activities 
instead of low-value activities. Yeah. Is that a fair summary? No, I think it's the first time. I think the only thing I'd add would be that sometimes doing something fun or something that's kind of a nice little distraction. I mean, for me, my personality, I will get a lot of energy from that and then I'll put it into the, you know, the real work. Um, so I, I can take this thing and then put it into that thing. And I, I kind of operate like that. And, and it's, so you define get momentum. Success. Define it, success as you believe it is. Yeah. So I think you need to really you know show up as your authentic self and if something does interest you then it doesn't mean so you can't do it but just know that if you do do that you you can't necessarily do this um and i think um what i've learned i would fire faster you know when you have an underperformer everyone knows on the team that they're an underperformer and actually the ceo or the founder is normally well with small teams obviously the founder's kind of really plugged in but even that quite often be the last person to find out because if you are delegating I'm um, sometimes a bit of a people pleaser, so I've I've had people hang around that I haven't been performing. So I think my new self is it just fire fire them. It's better for the team, it's better for them, and it's better for you. So I'm not going to disagree with you outright. My question is, how did we get to that point, and when did the problem begin? Because more often than not, if we look upstream. It's in the recruitment, it's in the hiring, it's in the onboarding. Mm-hmm. We set people up to fail. We hire and then we abdicate responsibility. So again, I think one of the big mistakes that I've seen many founders make, and God knows we've all done it, is we hire too soon. We hire sales too soon. We start a partner program before we're ready to be a good partner. We promote someone into management because they were a good producer, not because they're a good manager. And the role of an individual contributor is about being a good, selfish individual contributor, whereas the role of a manager is about getting everyone over the line. The top individual contributors are more collegiate and team players, but they are ruthless with their time. I remember working with uh, my uh, first AE, Graham Woff. He wasn't the easiest person to work with, um, but I've never seen anyone sell like him. I remember going into the... CTO of Ace, an insurance company, and he walked out with a million pound order in 15 minutes. It was genius. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, the order wasn't booked there and then, but the decision was made there. And then it was a matter of project managing it, so he didn't drop the ball. He also won a $5 million deal and upsold it to 100 million in a year. Now, that is masterful. Yes. That's understanding human beings. Mm-hmm. I think knowing who your audience is, I think, um, you know, how do they, you know, what information do they need to make a decision? I think not everyone's equal. I think my favorite customers are people that are quite entrepreneurial and just will go on their gut. And actually, that's kind of, it's just finding those people. So maybe that's how I did it, you know, in, in my sales career, just having a good read of people. But obviously, the bigger organizations, there's lots of different steps and processes and structures and you know you've got to be respectful of that but getting through the decision maker and getting them to give you a bit of time is often all you need but um yeah that that sounds like an amazing uh amazing individual well the challenge i think is that many people have a really skewed definition of success my favorite is the definition that silka Ahrens gave and um, she's a, a client of mine she runs the channel for hubspot for Amir, and she's got two young toddlers, so six and three. Mm -hmm. And she does that job successfully 
most days in eight hours a day. Now, to my mind, that's real success. And in her words, it's being able to do an excellent job and whatever she is doing, being present and finding joy in it, whether she's at home or whether she's at work, whether she's with friends or doing something on her own. And that to me is the success that I uh, aspire to. That's the, those are the, uh, that's the success that my clients aspire to. But the extrinsic stuff, it's a trap. And I'm really curious about that descent. When you looked around and you realized, first of all, where you were, but also you looked around the, the people around you that you were competing with, that you were friends with, that were your social circle. What were the the triggers, the indicators of the self-destruct button being pressed? What self-destruct with with me or with them? With, with you and also when you look around, other founders, other sellers that are you know, into the grind, they're all about working harder rather than sitting back and thinking deeply. I think, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. What did you envy? in 2010 of other people that you now have and you under, now you understand why you envied it? I don't think I ever envied I think I think for me it was, it was about putting a lot of pressure on myself. I know I wanted something different. So it was, I was just burned out with the, you know, just with the going through the motions, just, um, you know, I think um, at the time before I actually took my jump to um, starting one group. Um, I worked for an air charter business and it was a global business. And I tried to implement a, a global CRM because I just saw money on the table, but it was a very distrustful organization. It was very competitive. And the sales culture was very much, you basically, if you screw someone else over on your, you know, on another team, that's okay. And the CEO, I don't know how he did it, but he built a very successful business, but it was incredibly toxic sales environment and my plan didn't work because i just thought well surely everyone wants to share information and you know if the if the dubai office is doing this and the london office is doing that surely they'd want to know that they could actually get a bigger contract if they kind of communicated but but nobody wanted to share their black books and um you know i did get have some well, in fact i'm i closed a 2.8 million dollar deal on a cold call um and you know i uh i flew my boss out to South Carolina, he asked me why he was going because he didn't particularly like me. But I said, well, normally when someone writes a check for a million, you know, they want to look you in the whites of the eye. But I kind of winged it because I didn't know for sure. But it, it was it was looking good. And um, yeah, and I closed the deal in the meeting. But then it all kind of fell down when Chrysler went bust. And anyway, but I think it was just being a bit disillusioned, I think, with that's the real world, right? It can be very cutthroat. I wasn't able to, you know, really thrive. So a lot of the skills I have, you know, I, you know, it just wasn't, um, you know, I set my targets. I blew my targets up to, you know, I think at the time it was like 10 million, but when Chrysler pulled funding from one of my contractors, they fired me based because I didn't hit targets that I set for myself. So it was kind of uh, that was a, a tough one. So that's it. But it was the best thing that ever happened because, you know, I kind of did the entrepreneurial thing. So you know, I'd, I'd probably still be there. So, you know, it's what one of those things. What have you learned as a leader from that experience that you've applied in subsequent businesses? I think it, 
if you've got values, I think it's building your own. For, for me, it's it's actually starting a business that you can kind of create a culture or, or an environment that you want to be a part of. And, and, I, and, I, and I've since kind of come to the realization that, you know, every entrepreneur has the responsibility to leave the world in a better place. And I know there's a lot of that around, quite altruistic, but I can build, I can actually do amazing things with my work. And I think... Um, for, for me, it's just, you know, sometimes you just don't belong in certain companies or certain environments. And if you really can't fight, if you're kind of a bit of a misfit, like I am, just start your own thing because, and then, you know, as long as you can show up as your authentic self, then you're going to attract the right people into your life. And, you know, I'm surrounded by some amazing people that I'd never have, I'd never have met if I had, um, had kept working for the man. So every, everyone's journey is different, but I think, you know, you know, you're good. You know, and it's almost like, well, you know, you can you can build something amazing if you just, um, you know, take a bit of risk and, you know, and kind of um, follow your follow your heart, really. So tell me this. What were the lessons that you learned from your first enterprise as an entrepreneur that then resulted in you not repeating the same terrible mistakes? OK, so I would say I was very I used to be very impressed with titles. And I used to be very impressed with, um, you know, education and CVs, basically. And I put a lot of faith into people that had those stellar qualifications. The first experience I had, I, I worked for a, a company in Boston on Beacon Hill. Um, I worked for a billionaire. And um, I was the first person they hired that didn't have an MBA. And they were all IB League. But I was really excited to go to work for a company that had all these Harvard MBAs and masters from MIT. And I got there and I realized that I was just as smart as they were, but I didn't have the same degree of qualifications. And then later in life, I realized that, you know, my business partner, he was great. He's a nice person. But we just, you know, I put too much emphasis on his on his um, credentials and we, you know, resulted in we couldn't we weren't aligned and we didn't share values. So it didn't work. You know, again, it's like this, you know, you know, in awe of people that it's almost like, show me what you can do. You know, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think you realize that titles don't mean anything. Yeah. You know, so it's just well, it, it's a really interesting experience in sales recruitment has only one minor benefit, which is a slightly faster ramp up in terms of uh, performance and long term performance zero impact zero and you look at the way most people recruit they cut and paste and for managers they have the ludicrous line must be able to motivate how the hell do you motivate someone when motivation is an internal force then they want salespeople to go through the motions and follow a playbook or follow a system rigidly and it becomes dogma and the ludicrous thing is that it doesn't work and it patently doesn't work because they focus on the cold market where they have an average win rate of three percent when you break all the numbers down that's what the real win rate is which means you fail to generate revenue 97 percent of the time Mm. now you can accept that and say well that's just the way things are or you could ask the better question which is is there a better way and the answer is yes there are many Going cold is a a really daft way of doing things when you have a 97% failure rate. And then 
if you've got a 97% failure rate on your marketing, you throw the 97% that failed over the wall to sales, and then they fail again 97% of the time. Do they really? <laughs> even with marketing? Even with marketing warm leads? Oh, God, yeah. Well, think about this, um, James. 3% click-through and 15% conversion means I failed to generate revenue 99.9955% of the time and was only successful 0.00045% of the time. If you were running health and safety, finance, or HR, would you be in jail? Yeah. (laughs) Right. So if you're an investor or a founder and you accept those numbers, then bluntly, you're an idiot. I I wish I could be kinder, but you've got to look at these numbers and you've got to start thinking, okay, well, why do we do it this way? And the answer is because that's the way we've always done it. Mm. That's the way everyone else does it. That's a shit reason for doing it. So think, well, we know that referrals, instead of 3%, convert at around 16.7%. Okay. So that's a five and a bit X improvement in conversion. I'm much more interested in whether I'm converting the bottom of the funnel than adding more crap in at the top, because that just compounds my problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, 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 again, it comes down to the you know, where you're going to put your time. Um, yeah, so if, you, but why, but people keep making those those same mistakes, don't they? They they keep doing. So, is there a new model then? Because I think I did um, when we when we chatted before, you, you you explained a new model. Whether you can share it on here, um, I'd, I'd be happy to. So I, I think that was that was interesting. I'd like to know more about, and I think the why it's relevant for me. And I think one of your questions was as, as far as the, some of the challenges that um, I'm facing right now. I've been burned by putting faith into the wrong salespeople. I've mm-hmm. probably wasted about a hundred grand in the last two years on the wrong salespeople. Well, that, that's the that's the cost of the salespeople, the opportunity cost, all the people that they pissed off, all the people who'll never do business with you. Yeah, and I find it relatively easy. So right now, I'm I I close deals. I like it. I'm closing enough deals to keep growing. So we've got a nice curve. So the cash flow keeps going up and up. But you know, if I was to look at another model, ha- having gone through two salespeople that actually I thought were pretty competent. I mean, they sold me. I mean, I'm the idiot, right? Did I set them up for failure? Potentially, Maybe. but I kind of I hired well, Let me people. ask you this. For the role that you are considering hiring, how will you define success in role over three years? So you're at the three-year point. They're about to get promoted or it's the next phase of their career development. And you're saying to them, James, thank God we hired you. Best decision we ever made. What have you accomplished? What's that salesperson got to have accomplished for you to be having that conversation with them? Well, I think for me, it would be they would be making a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and- I mean, okay. I mean, okay. That's probably the- that is your fault because that's okay. wishy washy. Okay. So be specific. What does success look like in three years' time? I need to know what the hill is that I have to conquer. What does success look like? 100 happy clients. 100 happy clients. Okay, what matters most to those clients? If they're in your ICP, what matters most to them? Well, those clients need to be, they need to be recognizing revenue growth. So I think, okay, you know, it actually might be less than it It might be, it might be 50, 50 clients generating at least a 20% increase in sales through implementing our tools. 
I think that would be, I think they could do much better than that. But I think across okay. 50, okay. I think the, the aggregate average, if, if the average sales growth was 20%, then we've delivered value. Okay. So yeah, so that would be that would be the answer because so I don't want anyone. Possible. Yeah, so I don't want any possible. What conditions need to exist six months prior? What conditions need to be? Okay, they would need to be aligned with the vision. I think wouldn't they need to be aligned with the vision a lot sooner than that? Well, That's two and a half years in. I thought if they were in six months prior, as far no, no, as no, no, six, six months prior to that three-year moment, we're working backwards from three years. Oh, okay. okay. So two and a half years, what needs to be in place for the three-year goal to be accomplishable, if that's a word? I think all fifty clients would well, pr- pretty much cl- close to that number of clients would need to be probably already signed. Right. So they're actually, already fact, on board. Not all of them, if not all of them, signed actually. Right. So um, fifty need to be on board by then. I think fifty needs to be on board. Yeah, maybe the numbers need to be. Yeah, I'd have to figure out. Is it thirty? Is it fifty? Yeah, they would. They would need to be on board at least a year before, or all of the clients, whatever number that is, would need to be on board before, probably on month twenty-four. Um, so again, okay. you'd have to. It'd have to be realistic. So uh, yeah, because I've um, I've obviously worked in sales organisations where the target's too high and people yeah. get disheartened and stuff. I mean, so there will be a number and all that shit. None of that. What's required is a bit of thought. If you reverse engineer success mm-hmm. and you work backwards in six months, what do they need to know? By when do they need to know it? Where can they find it? What resources do they need? What budget will they need? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who will need to do that work? Will it be them or will it be other people in the organization? How do we set them up to succeed? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What resources do they need? What technology do they need? What data do they need? What work are they going to do? What can they say no to? So again, does this help me achieve my objective? If it doesn't, I have permission from the highest person in the company to say no to it, even if it's to them. If they want me to turn up to a meeting and I can't see any value in how it's going to help my customer move their understanding forward, then I'm not turning up to that meeting, no matter how much you want me to. Yeah, and I have the right to do that because I run my book of business. So you work backwards in stages, but the key is to understand what is the job to be done that we are all serving and how does this role serve that job and what do they have to do on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly basis in order to execute it? Mm -hmm. So once you've done that backward planning, then what I do is I take a blank sheet of paper and I say, okay, James, if you were in this role, What are the things that you need to do on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis without fail, without anyone having to put a boot on your neck in order to get you to do it? What are the things that you need to do repeatedly, habitually, and well Hmm. for you to be successful in this role? Okay? Now, more often than not, people start with the tediously dull derivative shit that is of no value. Okay? So must be able to uh, make cold calls. Why? must be able to use Excel or um, Salesforce or whatever. Why? Mm-hmm. Okay. If I can't find a good reason for it, it's not going into the job description because I want to attract someone who is already successful and has no reason to move. I want to enlist the right kind of person, which means that I'm going to have to sift through a lot of frogs to get my prints. So On average, A players in tech sales come around roughly one in 200. Hmm. 
mm-hmm. which means that on average, you're going to have to interview around 200 people to find one A player and somewhere between six and a dozen good B players who have A potential. Mm-hmm. Now, do I want to hire an A player? Probably not, because I need to leave them room for growth. Okay. So what's the raw material that I cannot hire, uh, that I cannot train, that I need to have at the start? So these are values. What values do we share? Okay. What are the habits that they need to be successful? What are their cognitive abilities? What, What are their abilities to adapt? What are the kind of questions that they will face in this role? And what parallels? Well, they have had to answer or ask the same sort of questions. It could be being a mum. Yeah. Returning mothers are often fantastic hires. Yeah. Because they yeah. don't have any time to fuck around and waste. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they know how to say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, you've got to think differently, but you've got to think about how is this person going to succeed in the job? Yeah. What do I have to do to create the conditions to make that a certainty? It's it's kind of funny actually, because that is a blind spot uh, you've just revealed, right? So uh, I've in my sales career, I was very much an independent contributor. Mm-hmm. Um, I have managed sales teams um <laughs> at, at different levels of success. But um I think it's that talent versus it's like, you know, if I was to deconstruct what I do, I mean I I've always focused on just getting the next deal. So, uh, and then, and then not worry, and then just getting the next deal. And that lights me up, but that isn't probably good enough when it comes to, you know, maybe, well, hiring the right person, number one, giving them the tools that they need to be successful and then incentivizing that they get, they want to stay for the long haul and not take the black book when they leave. And this uh, is the key. Yeah. And no I think that's to make a hire. What they want to do is hire someone who succeeds in the role improves over time fits in mm-hmm. and stays yeah that's what they really want yeah i think yeah i think for me i think they would need to have some kind of entrepreneurial flair because okay there's other markets that we could go into on the finance side so for that to be learn, possible yeah they earn that right. possible what are the rules that you have to put in place so that you can delegate decision making to them so that they don't have to come to you and you become a bottleneck yeah, 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 yeah. Well, no, I don't. I do not want to manage, um, but I just. But again, I. But like you said, maybe I don't need the A player. Right. Um, I'd like to lead, but uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, it's interesting because my my um my business partner guy who uh, you know he he comes out of a banking background, he doesn't want to, you know, have lots of employees. You know, we want to use introducers and contractors and stuff, and we have actually been you know reasonably successful they don't cost us anything they bring us opportunities they get a rev share and actually that new model is really exciting and it's working it's working actually well you don't necessarily have to manage that they just bring you opportunities so it's like scaling that but i'm still open to you know other models that's a great start my challenge to you is how do you systematize that so that not only do they bring you business because of the revenue share? But by bringing you in, they get to sell more of what they already want to sell more of. Because if I can help you 5X your sales, you don't give a flying fuck about my commission. No, I don't. No, I don't. Now, what's more, anytime there is an opportunity to bring me in, 
and you think it's going to 5x your sales, you'll bring me in. Mm. I'm not going to have to push. So this is where reflection comes in. This is why we've got to spend time in deep thought. <laughs> we, we've got to think. I'm always minded of that wonderful A.A. Milne cartoon of Edward Bear being dragged by his leg down the stairs as uh, by Christopher Robin. And his head goes bumpity, bumpity, bump. And Edward Bear thinks to himself, is there a better way? Uh, there is, inevitably. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the problem is, if you don't stop and think, if you don't pause to reflect, then you'll just get on the hamster wheel and you end up in that burnout and you're numbing all the time. The reality is, it doesn't have to be that hard. I mean, if you look at the best sales that you've ever done, James, mm-hmm. were they ones where you complicated things? Did you clear the path? Did you think ahead? Were you asking thought-provoking questions that caused your buyer to open their eyes to new possibilities and they saw you as an ally? Or were you trying to transact and push them over the line? No, I think it, it was, it's just effortless, isn't it? Yeah. You, uh, so it should be. You know, I mean, I've, I've sold, um, you know, software to brain surgeons and I had to, I had to sell the wives in that situation because yeah. you, know, you have 12 partners and you had to get a majority. So I had to sell six partners and their wives. In fact, the wives, you know, if they invested in this, they couldn't buy a Hummer. You know, yeah. This was in the US. And it was literally, yeah. I was convincing the wife that could she hold off on a Hummer for a few months, you know, because their husband husband's going to make more money so she could buy two Hummers. <laughs> but again, it's just being that aware that it's not just who, who are the players. But I think, um, but yeah, how do you teach that? It's, that's the thing. You can't, it's like... Well, you, you can. need to find someone that has that. James, James, James. No, you're wrong. You didn't pop out of your mother's womb able to do this. You no. learned it. It was yeah. an acquired skill. Yeah. Yes, some people have a propensity, but the really important thing is the willingness. If someone is willing to learn and is willing to humble themselves by going out and trying to find people who prove them wrong, go out and find what they're missing. That's the big difference between the top 4% and everyone else, because they are not afraid of being wrong. They're not afraid of challenging. The big problem that we've got is that so often we're wasting enormous amounts of energy trying to convince people instead of working out what matters most to them and then finding a way to give it to them so there is no resistance. It's not the what, it's the why. It's selling them on the why. Well, everyone has a, it's, um, maybe I'm not explaining it right. Well, but yeah, you've got to find what they buy want. buy for right? their reasons. They don't buy for yours. And you have to find their motivation for change. Because yeah. all of us sell only one thing. Whether we're selling or we're in management or leadership, we sell change. And people don't fear change. They fear the uncertainty that comes with it. There's yeah, a meta study of 330 studies of mankind's greatest fear. And it was the future, because with it comes uncertainty. Mm -hmm. I mean, James, think about this. If you look ahead over the next five to eight years, okay, Mm -hmm. and you look at the conditions of the global economy and even how that's going to affect you, Mm. what are you doing to prepare for what's to come? There's a lot of uncertainty out there. Yeah, I mean, I I have this conversation with my business partner. Again, it's uh, all we can control is what we do. Exactly. Not getting too distracted. Like you said, you've gone through five recessions. I can't stand rut stories and excuses. Um, There is a way, but it's almost like as long as you show up, add value, 
put the other person's needs before your own. Yeah, and, and just being smart about where you prioritize your time. And the, the one other thing I would add is practice. Prepare. Mm-hmm. Show up. Do your research. And stop faffing around trying to be in haste because it hurts your speed. Slow down. Mm-hmm. Take the time to think, what's the minimum amount of effort required in order to achieve this outcome? How can I enlist others to contribute to that so that their strengths make this outcome better for everybody? And where is the common ground that I can build bridges? But the key is practice, because like you said, it's you, you learn by doing. Now, you don't want to practice in front of your customers, ideally. And this is where rehearsal, role play. And this is where management really comes in. And one of the things that baffles me is where managers say, oh, I don't have time to coach. Of course you don't have time to coach because you're not coaching. The paradox is the more time you spend developing your people and Mm -hmm. equipping them to be able to make decisions, delegating responsibility, enabling them to make decisions quickly with limited information, knowing that they're not going to be punished if it goes wrong, so long as they've followed the guidelines, you can free up enormous amounts of your time. And if you're an entrepreneur, you don't want to be doing 10 pound or 100 pound an hour jobs. You want to be doing 1,000, 10,000 pound an hour jobs. Mm-hmm. And you want to delegate and outsource those other things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, sorry, I go on. no I, I, I'm very in tune with that. As far as the, yeah, your time is, if, that's why if you can put 110% of your energy into the things that matter, and I'm actually getting pretty good at that. And I do have VAs and I, I, I do have, I've outsourced my time so I can focus on the high value stuff. I think it's like how, you know, when am I ready? Um, you know, do I need salespeople? Do I, yeah, at what point, you know, does the introducer model work? I'd be curious to know whether you'd ever seen that work really well. And, yeah, absolutely. And, when, the, the, and when do you I mean, hit a point? For the future of sales, as far as I can see, is ecosystems. because. The level of complexity in most organizations is very high. If you're talking about the tech stack, just the sales and marketing tech stack could be 17 to 40 different applications. The tech stack for your email could be 20 different applications. Security could be another 20. Mm -hmm. Large organizations, enterprises have 600 to 1,000 different apps running concurrently. That's a lot of vendors and a lot of throats to choke. Mm -hmm. They don't want that. What they want is an outcome. And what they really want are allies who can help them navigate the uncertainty. And this is where ecosystems come in. If you are not surrounding yourself with people who sell to the same audience that you do, but don't necessarily compete, and if they do, learn how to carve it up uh, like gentlemen and be decent about it and have certain guidelines. So, for example, in my ecosystem, we have the first rule, which is no assholes. There's no room for ego. The second rule is never take advantage, even if you can. If I see an opportunity to make a sale, but I recognize that one of my partners could probably serve the customer better, I bring them in. And if they win, I'm delighted because the customer gets a better outcome. Because I'm not paying to try and transact. I want this customer to be a customer for the next 30, 40, 50 years. I want to be selling to their children, their grandchildren, and my kids to be selling to them too. Mm. I don't have to go out and have to hunt for new business cold that's an idiot's game mm-hmm. i like that i do i do like that and i think i've got a bit i've got you know a, a bit you know, a lot to learn and it started and i'm excited 
one thing I'm struggling with, obviously the the training market is where we're focused on. And actually I've got enough to do for the next two or three years. And actually at the rate I'm doing things, I can keep building that business. But there's other markets like healthcare and home improvement where I would do a JV tomorrow and actually tell them, how, show them how to do it in those markets and they can own those markets. And that might be a conversation that we can talk about because if I get the right partner, it's like, we know how to do it. We've got the lending relationships. You know, it's um, and, and then you know, is there a bit of you know hygiene money to gonna get it started? You know, pay you know, put someone on payroll for you know a number of months until they can actually self-sustain. You get someone good, and that's a really nice you know opportunity. So it's almost like, but is that distracting? You know, it'd be distracting for me to do that, but it's almost like getting the right partner, and it might be the right salesperson. I mean, and I've tr- I've tried. There's a couple of really A players that. I'm trying to get them to run those divisions. But again, have you thought you know, of looking at partner salespeople instead? Partner salespeople. Yeah. What people Someone who that... knows how to build partnerships. Someone who's good at creating cooperation, who mm-hmm. understands how to play the long game. Because it, it strikes me that you're very good at the transactional stuff. And for the time being, you're going to carry on doing that because you are a perfectionist, you're a bit of a control freak, and you probably don't want to let go quite yet. And if you can get someone who can work that long, uh, that medium and long-term pipeline and really start building the introducer base, then they can wheel you in when they need the top gun. But meanwhile, what you're doing is you're building a really solid base. And partners are worth 100 customers. That's an interesting one I hadn't actually given any thought. Because I think the biggest fear that We've had, you know, a salesperson, you pay them a good, good chunk. They don't work, they leave, and they they take the database with them. And I, I mean, I've done that myself. I mean, you know, not in a bad way, but it's like you you build relationships, you build friends with people. So I think the partner route, they're building relationships with introducers. It's, it's a pretty safer bet, maybe. I think maybe I could convince my business partner to say yes to that. Um, who's my t- polar opposite, by the way. He's very structured. He's part of Mensa. He's a quant guy. He's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. And we do compliment one another. So, you know, two of us, we've got a lot of capability. I hook and he fries them. But if we could get... And this is the point. You've already demonstrated how partnering works. You you know that it works in your own partnership with your business partner. All you're doing is you're extending the principles elsewhere. In the relationship that you have with your business partner, what are the ground rules? What what are the unspoken rules? What are the spoken rules? How clear are you in your communication? You know, uh, is it high challenge, high support, or do you uh, withhold information? Of course, you fucking don't. Partners fight. Yeah. The good thing about partnering is we're not afraid of conflict if it's constructive. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're working towards common purpose. That's the great thing. Yeah. No, no, I, I, you know, I, it's true because you can have very different points of view, but as long as you want the same thing and there's that alignment, you can fight it out. I think like, bring it on, let's fight it out, you know? Um, And you know what? And then, and then just knowing when it's like, you know what, you're, you're right. And I'm, I'm going to concede on this (laughs) because I know, because you, you touched on your model as far as if there was a way that you talked about putting someone in, you know, placing someone in an organization and then taking a, a cut of their salary or something. Maybe that was something. That's a that's a, another project. But the, again, the key here is that 
you can build a business that's very profitable and very effective with very low staff. I interviewed someone for the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he built a business with five people that turns out, turned over 30 million in their fifth year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, they generated roughly 100 million over the course of those five years between that's five crazy. people. And it's possible to do. But his constraint, and this is where I think we need to finish, you need to look at constraints as catalysts. They're not obstacles. You have a mission, and that's the hill that you have to conquer. Well, the fact that you've got to conquer it doesn't change. There may be a flooded river. There may be the enemy in front of you. So you've got to find another way. Do you dig under? Do you go over? Do you fly? Do you go around the back? Do you take the long way around? But one way or another, and this is when I'm looking in recruitment, These, that's when I said, you know, what are the kind of questions that they've had to ask and uh, deal with? I'm looking for that kind of problem solving in the recruitment. I want to know, for example, when someone has had to deal with difficult people and uh, they've had to uh, get a number of difficult people to agree on something, that's a really useful bit of experience. But what, you know, having worked for SAP and sold into a bank, that doesn't tell me anything. It just tells me that you had a good brand on your card and they bought in spite of your selling. Yeah, I know. I've learned, I've learned that. You know, it's, it's been fascinating. I've, I've really enjoyed our time together. You've definitely uncovered some things that I need to give a bit more thought to, which is, you know, part of why I wanted to do this. First place to learn from you. And um, it's been fun sharing my story. Thank you very much. How can people get hold of you? So I think, um, well, if they're a training provider and they want to learn a finance, then rocketindustries.co.uk. If they want to check out my podcast, it's um, rocketpod.uk. And, um, you know, I'm my, my name's James Cuss, C-U-S-S. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Always interested in, uh, you know, meeting new people and hearing ideas. And, yeah, so. Um, Wonderful. James Cuss, thank you. Great. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you are a salesperson who has been an above average performer, but for some reason you're struggling and you've been trained in all the popular methodologies, medics, Sandler, Spin, uh, Miller Hyman, whatever, but it's not working, then maybe having a chat with me may help. At the bottom of the blurb, you're going to find a link to our sales strategy audit, and it'll give you an opportunity to analyze your own sales style. Then book half an hour with me, and I'll spend half an hour doing a quick consult with you. If you want to talk about coaching, that's fine. I'm not going to push it. Obviously, this is part of a lead funnel. If you want to talk about coaching, absolutely up for that. But what I'll give you is half an hour of raw, unvarnished feedback and something that you don't know about yourself, and something that you can apply in the next 30 days to start seeing improvement. So if you fancy that, then please click the link and get in touch. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.